Uh, but I would like to say good morning to you. Um, good morning to you all. It is a pleasure to be with you. If you're new here, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible to the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is uh, one under the chair in front of you, and you will find Colossians chapter 1 towards the back of the Bible in page 983. Page 983, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 8. I'll make four points. The main idea in this passage, I think, is a rather simple one. You can see it written out for you on the backside of your worship guide, and it is this. Thank God for the fruit of the gospel in His church. Thank God for the fruit of the gospel that you see in His church. So let's go ahead and read verse 1 down to verse 8. I'll pray, and then we'll dig into the passage verse by verse. It takes around 45 minutes or so. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you, and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, would you come now? We need you to come now. We cannot hope to understand this passage or your word without your spirit opening our eyes, illuminating for us its truth. And how desperately we need to hear from you this morning. Some of our hearts are weary. Some of our hearts are easily distracted. Some of our hearts are just restless. And so, Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to come this morning to encourage us, to strengthen us, to settle us, to calm us by seeing Jesus. Give us eyes to see Him. Give us ears to hear Him. Give us hearts to love Him. Give us hands to serve Him so that all of our life there would be a banner written above it that says, Jesus is Lord. Do this for His sake. Amen. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Earlier, I, I called this a book. More precisely, it's a letter written by a Jewish man named Paul and his friend, a young man named Timothy. 
This was written around 30 years or so after the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. And it was written by Paul, who wasn't always a follower of this Jesus. Actually, Paul started off as an enemy of Jesus. And he spent some years of his life chasing down Christians and throwing them into jail. Paul started off as a persecutor of the church of God. Even had a part in the death of the very first Christian martyr. But one day, while on his way to a town called Damascus, where he was going to arrest Christians, a light brighter than the sun exploded around him, and he and those who were with him fell to the ground. And out of that light, a voice spoke saying, Saul, Saul, that was his Hebrew name, why are you persecuting me? When Paul asked who was speaking, the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then the Lord, the risen Lord, the ascended Lord goes on and explains this to the Apostle Paul. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness to what you have seen of me that I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul had a mission. And from that moment on, the apostle Paul went around telling people about Jesus, preaching in synagogues about Jesus, planting churches of Jesus, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to all who would listen. Some years later, He would do just that in a city called Ephesus, which is in western Turkey. He would start a church for the Lord Jesus there, and he would spend a couple of years teaching anybody who would come about the Lord Jesus. People came from all over to listen to the Apostle Paul talk about Jesus of Nazareth. It's likely that one of the fellows that came to hear the Apostle Paul in Ephesus was a man named Epaphras. Epaphras is probably a Christian Uh, became a Christian under the Apostle Paul's preaching. It's very likely that Epaphras was discipled by the Apostle Paul himself. Epaphras was not from Ephesus. He was from a small town to the east of Ephesus, about 120 miles, called Colossians or Colossia, Colossae, Colossae. And who knows how long Epaphras spent with Paul learning about Jesus, but eventually he returned home to Colossae and he he started a church there. And in time, Epaphras also helped to start churches in surrounding towns, Laodicea and Hierapolis. With time and with the Lord's work, the church at Colossae grew. And about a decade later, they were experiencing some issues, as all churches do. Epaphras reaches out to his mentor for help. So Epaphras travels to Rome, where the Apostle Paul is under house arrest for teaching people about Jesus. And he tells Paul of the work that God is doing in the Colossian church, as well as some of the things, some of the struggles they're enduring. 
And so Paul writes a letter to a church he had never been to, to a church that he'd only ever heard about from others. He, he says to them, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Paul's letter to the Colossians is beautiful. It's unique in that he doesn't specifically come out and name the problem they're suffering through. He does that in some of his other letters, but in in Colossians he doesn't do that. He doesn't call out any particular sin. He doesn't call out any particular person like he sometimes does in his other letters. Instead, what the apostle does is he just lifts up Jesus as high as you can for all to see. And this has left many Bible scholars with little to write about what prompted this letter. Oh, they still write, of course, because they don't want to waste a good education, but in their writing, they're speculating about the reasons he wrote this letter. No one knows for sure the problems going on in the Colossian church. Instead of confronting issues head on by naming it and coming right after it, Instead of taking the issue, putting it out here and examining it from all the angles, what the Apostle Paul does here is he just puts Jesus out in front of us and examines Jesus from all angles. As a pastor of a church, with your own unique brand of issues, I find Paul's tactic here refreshing like a breath of fresh air. I don't know much of anything, if I'm honest. I don't pretend to know much about how to fix your problems, even my own problems. I don't always know the right path down in this dark wood of life. But what I do know is Christ and Him crucified. And Colossians reminds us that's what we need. See Jesus. See who he is. Whatever your battle this morning, whatever your difficulty, Jesus is the solution. Understanding your socio-psychological issues and exegeting culture and your family background and all that stuff, it's helpful to be sure it has a place But whatever the root cause of your struggle is, no, the solution is always, always the same. See Jesus. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and His precious love and His glorious cross until your heart is moved and your life is changed. Colossians is high Christology, among the highest in Scripture. So I would encourage you to give yourself to the next few months that will be in this book, reading, meditating on the book of Colossians. Pray the Lord would open your eyes and and that you would see, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps anew, the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So to that end, I join with the Apostle Paul and pray grace and peace from God, our Father. Point one, thank God for gospel effects. This is verses three to five, the first part of verse five. We always thank God 
the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, thank God for gospel effects. Paul and his friend Timothy always thank God when they pray for the Colossians. Can I encourage you to do the same thing? At the members' meeting, we often encourage the members to take the membership role and to pray through the membership role by name, the people that make up the membership of this church. As one of the names on that precious list, please pray. I probably need your prayers more than most. Please pray for the members of your church. Remember, Paul had never been to Colossae. He had only ever heard of this church and their faith from Epaphras. And still, Paul is thanking God for God's work and the gospel bearing fruit in that church. As the gospel always bears fruit everywhere it goes. This is one reason we often pray for other churches in our services. We're thankful for what the Lord is doing here in our church, to be sure. But we're equally thankful for what the Lord is doing in other churches in our area. We're thankful that we're not the only church that's been commissioned by God to hold out the gospel in this town or in this county. The Lord has been pleased to grant Miami County a handful of of solid, healthy, gospel-centered churches. We thank Him for this. We pray the Lord would bless those other churches. We pray the Lord would give us more of those churches. Notice Paul is thanking God, giving God credit for what's happening at Colossae. In verse 7, he calls Epaphras his fellow servant and faithful minister, but the credit for what's happening in that church doesn't go to Epaphras. It goes to God. The apostle is always careful to make sure that we know who is building the church. It wasn't Epaphras. It wasn't Philemon. It wasn't the Apostle Paul. It wasn't young Pastor Timothy. It wasn't even the membership of the Colossian church that was building that church. It was Jesus Christ building that church. Lest you forget that it was Jesus who told Peter, I will build my church. The church of Jesus Christ belongs to Jesus Christ. And of course, he uses qualified men and women to do the ministry, to labor. But that's all that we are. We are laborers, workers. It's God's vineyard. We work in it. This is what Paul told the Corinthian church about who built their church. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It's not our responsibility to grow this church. It is not our responsibility to grow this church. It is our responsibility to be faithful and plant gospel seeds and to water them.
God will cause the growth. Think of it like a garden. You can till the garden. You can plant your seeds in the garden. You can water the seeds in the garden. You can weed the garden, but you can't make the seed germinate. You can't force the sun to come out. Is that my fault? It is God who causes the growth. God has not left building the church up to you or to me or to Pastor Brent. We plant seeds, we water, but God is the one who sees the fruit come to life. Well, I hope you see how encouraging this is. Those of you who have loved ones who are far from God, you can't save them. God has not left that up to you. Your job is to tell them about Jesus, about God's love for sinners, about God's forgiveness for sinners through the cross of Jesus Christ. Your job is to plant the seed and to water the seed with prayer. But God will give the growth. So Paul and Timothy thank God for the gospel's effect at Colossae. And he points out the gospel's effect in verses 4 and 5. You can see this there. I want you to notice Paul's, one of Paul's beloved triads in these verses. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. It was a favorite triad of his that he would often use to affirm a person is a Christian, truly a believer. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that you are in Christ, that you are saved, and that when you die, you will spend eternity in heaven? How do you know that? What is the answer to that question? Well, you can see it here. A life characterized by increasing presences of faith in Jesus, hope in Jesus, and love for Jesus and others. Paul knows the Colossians are in Christ because they have faith in Christ. Now we know from Scripture that faith is a gift from God. It is God-given. Faith is not the cause of God's work. Faith is the consequence of God's work. Friend, we are not saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a God-given faith. And so it works a little bit like this. Imagine, suppose you wrecked your car and totaled it. So you have a totaled car and you have no money to buy a new car, but you've got to get to work. So you're in a bad way. And your friend, because your friend loves you, hands you a stack of $100 bills, $10,000. And you take that $10,000 to the car dealership and you buy yourself a new car. How did you get that car? What? What was it that gave you that car? Was it the green rectangular pieces of paper that actually gave you that car? No. It was the love and kindness and generosity of your friend. So that's a little bit like being saved by grace through faith. Faith is just the currency. And the currency is just paper it's, it's pointing to the reality of the generosity of the giver 
of the gift of your salvation. So that times infinity is what it means to be a Christian saved by grace through faith. And so it is that Christians don't depend on faith. We depend on Christ. We don't have faith in faith. Faith in Christ. You don't have faith in your dollar bill. You have faith in what that represents. It's just paper. Our faith, besides, is not stable enough to depend on. Sometimes our faith wanes. Sometimes doubt creeps in. And when it does, thank God that your faith is not in your faith. It's in Christ, in His grace, which never changes, which never wanes. It's like a line from a hymn that we sang at the marriage seminar this weekend. When darkness hides His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. Faith is more than just belief. It is dependence on God in all things that leads to action. The reformer Martin Luther wrote this about faith. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. So certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Because of faith, you freely, willingly, and joyfully do good to everyone. Serve everyone. Suffer all kinds of things. Love and praise the God who has shown you such grace. End quote. It's thanking God for giving you that brand new car and then driving it to his glory. Faith is boldness living, is a bold living trust that leads to action. It changes us. It produces change in us. And so we can't help but do work because of faith. So sometimes you're going to get this kind of well, are we saved by grace? Are we saved by faith? Are we saved by works? There is no tension between faith and works. Those two things are never separated. Someone who has faith in Jesus will work. Our good works spring out of our faith. I think it was Luther who also said that we can no, no easier separate faith from works than we can separate light and heat from fire. One just comes out of the other. Well, so Paul recognizes that the Colossians' faith, the Colossians have faith because the love that they have for all the saints. The love that they have for all the saints. This is the second time, by the way, that the Apostle Paul uses the word saints. Now, some of you may have grown up in church traditions where saints were like special people that God had used to do miracles or something, and, and, and they, they honor them, and they make statues of them, and they make sweet action figures out of them. Well, that's not how the New Testament uses the word faith, or uses the word saint. A saint is a Christian, anyone who's trusting in Christ for, for salvation. That's a saint. You are all saints. Well, most of you are all saints. Paul thanks God for the Colossians' faith, which is demonstrated in their love for other Christians. Now listen to this. One of the initial evidences that someone has come to faith, that is, someone has been filled by the Spirit of God, that someone is a Christian, is a love for other Christians. 
First, it's a love for God, to be sure. But then it's also a love for other Christians. Let me just put it this way. The initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is this. A love for God's people. You just want to be around other Christians. You want to pursue fellowship. You want to attend church and and, and participate in church life. You love being with the church, serving the church, finding reasons to be in the church, telling others about the church. Conversely, one of the first signs of an unhealthy Christian is a withdrawal from church. Love for the saints grows cold. They don't pursue the fellowship of the local church. They avoid it. Can a person be a Christian and not go to church? Possibly. But I could build a sailboat in my basement. And I could stand at the helm... And I could pretend that I'm sailing, and I could even buy one of those sweet sailor outfits like L. Ron Hubbard and act like I'm a sailboat captain. But no one is going to call me a sailboat captain. So to, 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 say, to, to confess that you're a Christian and to not go to church is very similar to just building a sailboat in your basement and acting like you're a sailboat captain. So Paul thanks God for the faith of the Colossians. And he thanks God for the love of the Colossians. And he grounds both of them in the faith, both the faith and love in the hope laid up for them in heaven. Here's another true sign that you belong to Jesus Christ. You're longing for heaven. Clinging to the promises of God laid up for you in eternity. The rock solid foundation of bold faith and selfless love is God's unfailing promises to us in the age to come. The hope laid up for us in heaven. For a Christian, the best is yet to come. If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, you're being saved by Jesus Christ. You will be saved by Jesus Christ when He comes. And one day soon, the sky will be rolled back and the Lord himself will appear in glory, bringing heaven with him. And we will meet him. And we will be with him forever. This is the Christian hope. It's what the Apostle Paul calls our blessed hope. Well, there may be some of you here today who are not believers in Jesus Christ. You've never trusted in him. You've never depended upon him. And I'm just delighted that you're here. Church is the best place for you to be on a Sunday morning. And now would be a good time for you to ask yourself, what is your hope? What hope do you have when this life is over? For the Christian, this life is the closest you'll ever see of hell. But for the non-Christian, This life is the closest you'll ever see of heaven. But if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that we were all once where you are, without hope, without God in this world, 
trusting in ourselves, that we're righteous enough. And God came to us in the same way He's coming to you, with the good news that Jesus came and paid the penalty of your sin on the cross. And by trusting in Him today, He will give you that free gift, faith. It's like that $10,000. You'll be forgiven of your sins and given a new life. If you've never done that, do it today. And tell someone about it. I'll be standing out there by the doors at the end of the service. Come tell me about it. I'd love to help you get started on this new life with Jesus. Eternal life is a sovereign act of a holy God. And we thank Him for the gospel effects. Next thing we see here, we thank Him for the gospel increase. This is verses 5 and 6. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Of this hope, Paul says, the Colossians have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel announcement is the good news of God that he saves sinners like us through Jesus Christ. Is the announcement of Jesus' victory over sin and death the inauguration of a new kingdom and his rule and reign over our lives. So Paul thanks God that the gospel message has come to the Colossians and it has, and this is probably a little bit of a holy hyperbole, is increasing, it's went to the whole world and increasing. In a few short years after the Lord Jesus had been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, the gospel spread everywhere. First from Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria to the old world. You can see this in the book of Acts. It was started as a band of 120 prayerful Christians. It became thousands. Eventually from every ethnicity across Asia Minor. It eventually became the billions who are calling upon the name of the Lord to this very day. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing across the world. There is so much gospel work to be done, and we are thankful that there is so much gospel work being done. You know that there are missionaries being sent out from every continent on this earth to every continent on this earth. For the last 200 years, most missionaries have come from America, and that's changing. In the last half century, the center of gravity in missions has shifted from the America, from America and the West to places like Africa, South America, South Korea. It's interesting to watch the, the way that Christianity has grown over the centuries. Did you know that most Christians live in the southern hemisphere now? That missiologists, people who study these things, they predict that in 20 years, there'll be more Christians in Africa than anywhere else. Here's something I learned this week. The country that sends the most missionaries per capita 
So the most missionaries compared to, the, to Christians is someplace I never would have expected. Palestine. But that's always how it's been. Those who have been given so much give so much away. You know, when you live in a country where when you say yes to Jesus, it could mean your very life. It could mean a very, very well, a separation from your own family. You tend to take things rather seriously, don't you? You tend to take a gathering like Sunday morning rather seriously, don't you? Because it's life and death. And you don't make that decision lightly, do you? You only make it when it's your whole life because your whole life is on the line. And so you just can't tell others. Those who have been set free use their life to set others free. And so it is that the gospel bears fruit and increases. There's much work to be done. But by God's grace, there is much work being done. And this is why Paul is thankful for what's happening at Colossae. The gospel, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing ever since the day they heard it and understood it in the grace of God and truth. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ have been forgiven of their sins. The effect of the gospel continues. It was one of the, one of the most eye-opening things for me as a young believer is that the gospel of Jesus Christ wasn't like the door that got you in. The gospel of Jesus Christ was like the whole house. It's not the one thing that gets you started in the Christian life. The gospel is what saves you and keeps you being saved and will save you at the end. As as your knowledge of God and His grace increases, you are affected increasingly by His kindness. And God-centeredness spreads throughout all aspects of your life. The way you think, the way you live, the way you speak, your priorities, the way you forgive one another, the way you own your sin, the way you spend your money. All of a sudden, the affections for this world, they just begin to wane, and the affections for Christ begin to increase. This reality is wonderfully captured by the old English Puritan John Newton, who is the uh, writer of the, the great hymn, Amazing Grace. Here's what he said about this how the gospel increases. He says this, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. But still, I'm not what I used to be. By God's grace, I am what I am. Cornerstone, he isn't through with you yet. Be patient. When you're tempted to bail on your friends, on your church, Remember how patient the Lord has been with you. Growth is slow. You know, it takes an apple tree about 10 years before it produces its first apple. That's just how God decided to make apple trees. In God's sovereign plan, God has willed things to take time. Sanctification, we say all the time, is a process. It takes a good long time. I once heard a pastor say that We tend to overestimate what God will do in one year and underestimate what God will do in 10. I think that's true. So we give thanks to God for gospel effects in our church. We give thanks to God for gospel increase in our church. And lastly, we give thanks to God for gospel ministers 
This is where we see, uh, this is where we'll end our time together, verses 7 and 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Some years ago, I attended a conference. It was a rather large conference. There was just a ton of people there. And one of the speakers uh, made a point. He asked the crowd, he said, uh, by show of hands, how many of you came to faith watching Christian TV? And there was a couple of hands that, that shot up, to my great amazement, because I've watched Christian TV. Um, and then he asked the question, how many of you have come to faith by going to a Christian crusade, like Billy Graham or something? A few more shot up. And then he asked this question, how many of you came to faith because someone you know and love came to you and shared the gospel with you? And it was a sea of hands. The ordinary means that God uses to grow the church, to bring people to faith, is by sending their loved ones who've met Jesus to tell them about him. Freed people telling trapped people where to find freedom. One-on-one conversations is what makes Christian converts. As a fan of church history, I love reading about revivals. Revivals are these times where the Lord just seems to show up in a town or some kind of region, and people are just drawn to the Lord from all over the place. And people are becoming Christians, you know, hand over fist, just one after the other. God is growing His church. I love reading about those times, but I, I, I think it's important to remember those times are an anomaly. Revivals like that, while we love them, while we pray for them, they're an anomaly. We pray for revival. We can't produce ri- revival. Revival is the sovereign work of God. We can't make revival happen, no matter how big our tent is or how many gaithers we hire. So the Colossians heard the gospel from Epaphras. Epaphras heard it from Paul. Paul heard it from Jesus. Paul calls, the, uh, calls Epaphras his beloved fellow servant and faithful minister. So we don't know if Paul was a pastor. He could have been a pastor. He could have been an evangelist. We don't know. What we do know is what Paul has told us about him. He is a servant. A better translation of that word is slave. He's a faithful minister. A better translation of that word is servant. It's the same word as deacon. Epaphras served the church at Colossae, perhaps as, his, as, as their pastor, but perhaps also just as a faithful member of the church. In Colossians 4, Paul writes this about him. Epaphras is one of you he says to the church, a servant of Christ Jesus, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. We thank God for gospel ministers, whoever they are, whatever their capacity, whatever their role. 
So ask yourself this question. Who are the men and women who the Lord has placed in your life who are serving you, encouraging you in the things of God? Who is the man or the woman who is struggling on your behalf in their prayers? Who is spending their life to see you stand mature and fully assured in the will of God? Who is working for you in your joy in the Lord? This is why God gives us pastors, slaves of God, servants of you. It is our joy to pray for you, to work, to see God's grace increase in you, to stand so, so that you will stand fully mature in the Lord, fully assured of His will. In Philippians, Paul says, pastors are workers for your joy. I think I can speak for Pastor Brent when I say that this church is a delight to serve. I regularly feel appreciated by you, encouraged by you through text messages, through phone calls, through emails, through warm hugs and smiles. You make, you make my job a delight. And I mean that. I love serving you. But you should know that the work of ministry is not just the job of Pastor Brent and I. It's all of our job. Every follower of Jesus has the privilege of helping others to follow Jesus. A healthy church is one in which her membership takes seriously the responsibility to sacrifice for the spiritual well-being of one another. So when troubles arise in the church, they don't disappear. They lean in. They pray. Or as Jane said yesterday morning, you pray until you pray. You just keep praying. And so many of you do this so well. Some of you open your homes to living stones, discipleship groups. I hear reports of some of you reaching out to one another, calling them on the phone, encouraging them in the Lord, asking how they can be praying for one another. Some of you meet for lunch and for coffee to encourage one another, discuss the things of God. Ladies are opening up their homes for Bible studies. Last week, I had a sister in the church tell, tell me that she had a stranger walk into her workplace and she had a chance to share the gospel with her. That's the ministry of the church working through the church, through the people of the church. And the last thing I'll say about that, anyone can get in on this. Anyone. Take time this week. Invite someone into your home, just like Felicia was sharing earlier. Invite someone into your home. Take them out for breakfast. Ask them how they're doing spiritually. Encourage them in the Lord. And this has the double benefit of, of you helping others, but also giving you a sense of rightness, as if this was the very thing you were made to do. Because in reality, it is. Please stand for the prayer of confession. We thank you, Father, because of the faith that you have granted to us to believe in Jesus. We thank you for the love that you have birthed in our hearts to love you and to love one another. 
We thank you for the faith and the love that we see in this church. We thank you for the hope that we see in our brothers and sisters as we long for and encourage one another to hang in there until you return in glory. Lord, you have brought this truth to us in the gospel, which so many years ago crossed a sea to find us. Someone shared it with us. Thank you for that work, their selflessness. And we see this gospel bearing fruit in so many ways in our church, in our lives, and we thank you for it. We see the gospel increasing through our church, through our lives to others. We thank you for ministers who serve us, those who love us enough to go after us when we turn away, when we run from fellowship of the local church. Thank you, Father. We know that this is from you and is a sign of your kindness. Yet, Lord, we confess that we have often failed to acknowledge these things and to be appropriately grateful to them. We admit that we have not been faithful to you. We've not loved your people like you love them. We've been so easily discouraged by your church, by your people, and so quickly fall into ourselves, withdraw. Lord, forgive us this pride, this selfishness, this arrogance. Fill us with your spirit and give us faith to believe in Jesus, to trust his perfect plan. Grant us a love for the saints. Show us the hope that we have laid up for us in heaven through Jesus. And send us your people renewed by the reminder of your grace into the world to tell anyone who will listen about the wonderful kindness of God that we have found in his son. Do this for his sake. Amen. Your assurance of pardon comes this morning from Psalm 103. Verse 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us.